Welcome to Rex Factor! This week, Isabella of Angoulême. With your hosts, Graham Duke and Ali Hook. Hello! Hello! And welcome to Rex Factor reviewing all the Queen and Prince Consorts of England from Elswith to Prince Philip. And as you've just heard, today we are reviewing the consort of King John, Isabella of Angoulême. That was a tricky one to say. Mm. Mm, that's um, that's getting towards professional level French. <laughs> now, unlike many of uh, of uh, her predecessors as Queen Consort, there's currently no full length biography. Uh, available for Isabella. But as we see, this is quite surprising as uh, she has a very dramatic and pretty well-documented life. So there's certainly no lack of things to talk about, even though people don't seem to have bothered to talk about her. Is this a a big advert for your book? Yes. (laughs) There's a gap in the market. Uh, As ever, if you'd like to get in touch with us, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram, where we are at RexFactorPod. Like the RexFactor Podcast Facebook page and email us at RexFactorPodcast at Hotmail.com. And we're a free podcast, but if you'd like to hear more of us and you can donate monthly, join the Privy Council and access bonus content that helps us keep on podcasting. Anyway, without further ado... Biography! As always, there's some debate over Isabella's birth. It's generally thought to have been in about 1188, though as we'll see, this is actually quite an important uh, matter of debate. She's the daughter of uh, Ima, the Count of Angoulême, and Alice of Courtney, who, despite her English-sounding name, is actually uh, a granddaughter of Louis VI of France, making her a first cousin of King Philip Augustus of France. Okay, good powerful then indeed so her grand lineage is also heightened by the fact that she is the only child of her parents and she is thus the heiress to the county of angoulême okay okay this is looking good Mm -hmm. now angoulême is technically a vassal of the duchy of aquitaine so situated on the left of france Mm -hmm. uh though it's not all the way on the left so it's not coastal county um situated between sort of the major cities of poitiers and bordeaux But whilst it's not a major European power, it is an important county in France, and it does tend to operate largely independently. So during the reign of Richard the Lionheart, Angoulême paid homage to France. So when John becomes king in 1199, um, not really quite sure which way their bread is going to be buttered. Oh, right. Anyway, so Isabella is uh, an heiress, as we said, for an important county, so people are going to want to marry her. And indeed, in 1200, she is betrothed to Hugh the Ninth of Lusignan. Odd. Okay. Kidnapped? No, no. Proper. Oh, right, okay. Right, proper yeah. betrothal. Um, so it's a formal betrothal, so that involves her going to live with Hugh and his family, but they're not formally married at this point because she's not yet at marriageable age, which at this point for girls is 12 years old. Oh, my God. She's mm. going to live with her... Ooh, dear. But it's quite common that when you have these very early betrothals, the girl will go and be brought up at her future husband's mm. court or home because then she gets used to the people, the place, the customs, so that she's ready to be the wife by the time she actually is old enough well then it's a bit incestual isn't it 
Oh, I don't know. I, I, I'm going to say that that system's had its day. Anyway, the Lucinians are powerful lords in Aquitaine, as we said, and their loyalty to the Plantagenets has also been consistent, really, only in its inconsistency. Um, but in 1200, Eleanor of Aquitaine had managed to at least temporarily secure their loyalty by persuading John to grant them the county of La Marche, which is uh, east of Angoulême. Right. So they're on board with John at the moment. And actually, the Lucinians and the Angulmar have previously arch rivals. So they wouldn't previously be working together. But this match between Hugh and Isabella could significantly alter the balance of power in Aquitaine because Hugh will be becoming the lord of Angoulême, Lucinian, and La Marche. So this will mm. cut off all the sort of lands, basically, between Poitou and Gascony in Aquitaine. So suddenly, this is great stretch of John's territory that will be ruled by one man. Okay, so if this is um, a game of risk, suddenly a player that looked minor is expanded rapidly. Yes, he's he's made a few very small little victories that suddenly connect all these little territories, and now he's got a mm. big block. Mm. So Hugh is now a major threat to John in Aquitaine, and it's probable John would never have agreed to give him the county of La Marche if he'd known that uh, Hugh was getting betrothed to Isabella. Mm. However, Hugh's grand ambitions were to come to naught because after being sent off to England on official business, he received the rather surprising news that in his absence, Isabella had married John. Oh, John, what's he been up to? What's he doing? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, he's very much the Prince Andrew, isn't he? (laughs) So John had been negotiating a marriage to uh, the daughter of King Sancho I of Portugal after annulling his seemingly loveless marriage to an English heiress called Isabella of Gloucester um, at the point at which he became King of England in uh, 1199. Um, It's not actually clear if he bothered to fully obtain papal dispensation for his annulment with his first wife, but, you know, he went to about as much effort as he could be bothered to go to. Yeah. So some contemporary chroniclers believe that John was just overcome with lust when he saw Isabella having happening to visit in La Marche and just determined to marry her pretty much there and then, regardless of the consequences. So kidnapping. Mm. Mm. Traditional. M- bit more traditional, but more likely it's a calculated move to deal with Hugh, to deal with the Lucinians, because John doesn't want that marriage to go ahead because it's a threat to him. Best way to stop it, marry Isabella himself. He gets on Guilherme. The Lucinians don't get all their powerful territory. It's a win-win. And she is pretty as well, or is that made up? She is reported to be uh, very, very beautiful. Obviously, we're dealing with the rather icky fact that she is at most 12 at this point. Oh... Oh, I see. Oh, I hope it's I hope it's greedy, John. It's got to be greedy, John, rather than lustful, John. At this point, he wants the strategy. Um, so, what he does, John is the one that sends Hugh away on official business to England. Oh, it's definitely him. Yeah. Okay. Persuades Isabella's father to recall her to Angoulême because she is obviously at this point in Hugh's household. Mm, so he's got to yeah. get her out of the household in order to marry her. The father agrees. Father agrees because he thinks well. She was going to marry this Sicilian lord, and now she's going to be Queen of England. Yeah, okay, yeah. Mm. Uh, So she's back, and he then uses Isabella's youth as the means to break the betrothal to Hugh, because it's a formal betrothal, so really you're not meant to break a betrothal, but it is permissible if one party is under marriageable age, 
which suggests that Isabella is actually maybe 11 going on 12. Mm. Well, and that's fudgeable, though, isn't it? You can sort of say, oh, yeah. She would even know when she's born. Well, indeed. Um, and it's ironic, of course, because the only reason that Hugh hasn't actually married her is because he was waiting for her to be old enough. Mm. But John obviously oh. doesn't have such scruples, marries her there and then. Oh, dear, John. Mm. Oh, dear. Well, although uh, morally dubious, shall we say, on a purely diplomatic level, this is quite a canny move. Oh, and, yeah. you know, if he had suitably compensated and emoliated the Lucinians for this insult and stealing uh, Hugh's future bride, he'd have been in a very strong position at this point. Um, but, obviously, this is John. Hmm. So instead he takes arbitrary action against them, ultimately leads them to rebel, and then they make an appeal to King Philip Augustus of France for help. And because he is technically John's liege lord for the lands he owns in what we would now call France, he summons John to appear before him in court, and when John refuses, Philip declares his uh, French lands forfeit, leading to a war which goes absolutely terribly for John. And by 1204, he returns to England, having lost Normandy to the French. Wow. That is going wrong on quite a scale, isn't it? Mm. Unfortunately for Isabella, she is very much associated with this disaster. Roger of Wendover accuses John of spending too much time frolicking in bed with Isabella when he should have been attending to matters of war. Mm. And uh, William Marshall's biography claims that John's marriage to Isabella was the cause of the ignominy and war that led to the king losing his land. Mm, mm. That seems unfair. Yes, not really her fault that John uh, mm. decided to marry her. There is some suggestion that it led to a rupture in the marriage as well. She was none too impressed um, that in 1203 she herself came under siege at Sheenon, and uh, despite the fact that a year earlier he'd heroically rescued his mother when she was under siege, for Isabella he decided that it was actually a bit too risky for him to go in person and uh, instead had to send one of his mercenary captures, uh, captains to rescue her. Wow. That's amazing what these boys and their mother's relationship is <laughs> <Yeah>. like. <laughs> Reflecting on his uh, losses, John declared to her, You hear, my lady, all that I have lost for you? Only for Isabella to snipe back in reference to her first betrothed. And I, my lord, have lost the best knight in the world for you. Sounds unlikely that that's right, that, that happened, though, isn't it? I mean, it's one of those where, on the one hand, it all sounds a bit sort of nicely embellished for a good tale. On the other hand... Mm. We have various quotes from Isabella at different times in her life which suggest that if she didn't say these exact words, it's the kind of thing and in the kind of way that she would have said it. Oh, right. Oh, cool. I, there's oh, a lot right. of fighting spirit in her. Yeah. A quality. What a retort, though. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, it's even suggested that at times John may have held Isabella under a form of house arrest. Yeah. Easier, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, they do that. Um, I mean, he's, he's learning from his father. Well, indeed. Um, the evidence, though, suggests that actually John's affections remain pretty consistent and the marriage is uh, very productive with several children being produced uh, and all after 1207 when she was 19. Oh, right. So maybe well, John think... does wait. 
He showers her with expensive clothes, jewels and foodstuffs. She accompanies him on uh, various excursions, including, before they lost uh, all the territory in France, uh, a visit to Paris, where she enjoyed staying up, dancing until the early hours and then sleeping until noon. So pretty standard teenaging at this point, really. Mm. Huh. Hashtag history's first teenager. Well, maybe. <laughs> Similar to John, as we're just saying, Isabella proves something of a tempestuous character. So they may well have quarrelled, but it's thought unlikely John ever put her in custody. More likely, he put her under armed guard for her own safety. I was thinking that as you were just um, speaking then, that that sounds like something you'd have to do anyway. So basically keep her in a prison. Yeah, and particularly after a disastrous campaign against France in 1214, when discontent amongst the English nobility is turning towards rebellion. And after John reneges on the Magna Carta, the rebel barons go to war with him, and in 1216 invite the French Dauphin to invade, and much of England falls under the Dauphin's rule. This is disastrous, isn't it? John, uh, at this point, then, is in poor health, and he dies at Worcester on the 18th of October of 1216, supposedly from a surfeit of peaches whilst suffering from dysentery. Mm. What, what is the surfeit? I know. <laughs> but it seems like they were diagnosing people's health issue by their last meal. <laughs> like this guy, what, yeah, what did he last eat? Lampreys. De- cause of death surfeit of lampreys <laughs> yeah. and same with the peaches did he eat a lot of them yeah mm, it's not looking good so anyway 1216 and uh john is dead which means that isabella is no longer the uh queen consort of england yeah god john was sorry what john it just amazed me how rubbish he was that actually we spent the time talking about that instead of her mm. Anyway, Isabella was in the southwest uh, of England when John died, and she's in possession of uh, the children uh, and also much of the royal treasure. Now, John had made contingency plans for her and the children to go abroad to escape capture if he thought, or if it was thought that was likely. But she goes instead to Gloucester and uh, rendezvous with the veteran heroic knight William Marshall, and they secure a speedy coronation for her son, Henry III, who at that time is just nine years old. Oh, yes, of course. Yeah, this is the heyday, isn't it? Mm. The uh, lack of coronation regalia, because they've lost much of uh, the south of England, means that uh, Isabella was forced to provide Henry with a sort of chaplet to act as a crown for the occasion. Wow. It really is desperate stuff, isn't it? There's Mm. no, like, he is the underdog here massively. But the situation does uh, improve dramatically for Henry III. Much of the discontent was really personal uh, and against John, so John dying is actually quite a major boost to his cause. Mm, mm, Definitely. Uh, And William the Marshal is in charge, and he wins a great victory at the Battle of Lincoln, uh, followed by further triumphs uh, at Dover and Sandwich, which ultimately defeat uh, the Dauphin. And Isabella is part of the initial delegation that ultimately leads to the Treaty of Lambeth, whereby the Dauphin returns to France, cedes his claim to the English throne, and Henry III is the undisputed King of England. Brilliant. I mean, she sounds like such a mover and a shaker, a bit like Eleanor so far. 
Now, we've seen throughout this series that it's often uh, queens can be denied a significant role during the lifetime of their husbands, but it's as queen oh. mother that their influence is truly felt. And Isabella, because she was so young when John married her, she's only 28 years old when John died. So with Henry, a minor, and indeed apparently the first minor king of England since Ethelred the Unready in 978. Mm. Wow. Uh, Isabella may well have been hoping for at least a decade uh, of dominance, really. Mm. Mm. Amazing. Instead, she is given no role in the Regency Council whatsoever. Uh, by who? Not by Marshall. Well, the thing is that while Henry III, as a child, gives the offer and hope of a fresh start, Isabella is very much tainted by her association with John. And indeed, of course, the marriage itself is seen as the thing which led to the downfall of the entire country in the first place. That's the thing which mm. set it all, set the ball rolling. She has no real experience of governance. John didn't give her much of a role. She doesn't have any faction at court. And by all the evidence, it doesn't seem that people really liked her very much. Oh. So then the the records of her words are are records of maybe... Just quite a spiteful person, not a witty person. <laughs> yeah, so rather than it being like, wow, she's amazing, go on, Isabella. Yeah. It's like, oh, these two, dreadful. Yeah. Yeah, thank God they had a son that everyone could get behind and do it, yeah. you know, for her. Hmm. Now, instead of lingering around in a country that uh, didn't really want her, Isabella decided instead to up sticks and go back to Angoulême. Mm-hmm. Which so, was now um, it, on its own and fine and its own kingdom type thing? Um, well, it's, I mean, it's still technically it's part of Henry III's realms because it's part of Aquitaine. So it's, she's going to oh, rule okay. the county because she is the now the independent countess because her father has died. Right, yeah. So she goes back in 1218 to live and rule independently as the Countess of Angoulême. And this works out... After? Uh, well, this works out quite nicely for the Regency Council, so they think, because they think, well, she's not here anymore, which is good, um, but she'll probably help to secure Angoulême for us, which, you know, is an area that's going to face baronial resistance and maybe external threats from France. The Lusignans could be troublesome again. So they think, yeah, this could work out quite well. Yeah, it works out rather well. Except that Isabella seemed to leave her loyalty to the Plantagenets behind in England along with her young children, all but one of whom she leaves behind as she sought her own freedom. So correspondence with England for the next couple of years is very tense. Isabella writing, uh, demanding more money for Angoulême's defences, claiming that she was owed more uh, money and lands in her dower than probably was actually the case. And when assistance uh, was not forthcoming, she took matters into her own hands and in 1220 took a second husband... One Hugh de Lusignan. Ah, uh, oh, lovely, happily ever after. Now this is not the same Hugh that she'd been betrothed to twenty years earlier. Oh, good God! Because he's he was like in his you know late thirties or so. He was a lot older. Oh right. This is his more age appropriate son, Hugh the Tenth of Lusignan, uh, who is the same age. Who's about the same age as her. Uh, oh, imagine if they were actually in love from when they were... <laughs> Twelve. Yeah. Oh, sweet. Still, the marriage has the same impact. The whole reason that John married Isabella 20 years earlier was to prevent this union of Angoulême and Lusignan. And yet here yeah. is Isabella 
just doing it for herself anyway. That's the final kick in the what's it doodahs to John. Well, actually, she's got a few more kicks to be uh, giving out here because not only uh, is this bad on a strategic level, but Hugh was actually already betrothed to marry Henry III's sister, Joan of England, who is, of course, Isabella's daughter. Oh, my gosh. Hmm. So, uh, oh, my gosh. So, So then that would have set up the same situation where this fellow that she ends up marrying would have been the 20 years senior again. Yes. To her daughter. Mm. So, well, at least she's resetting the the norm. (laughs) History repeating itself. Mm. But she's saying enough of that. Let's get... mm. English council are absolutely horrified about this because as the Queen Dowager, she's not meant to get married at all without the permission of the council. And then she's gone and done a marriage that they never would have agreed to, breaking up... uh, a marriage that they had already arranged. Uh, they confiscate her dower lands, try to get to the Pope to annul the marriage and even excommunicate Isabella. So she responds by effectively holding her own daughter hostage because in the meantime, the English have made a marriage uh, arrangement with the King of Scots, Alexander II. Mm. But obviously that can't go ahead until they have the daughter. <laughs> so Isabella won't give her back until they come to a compromise. It's amazing, this. So, Pope guarantees her dower rights, uh, or rather gets the English to agree to give her dower rights back, and at that point, she releases her daughter. Michael, release the daughter. (laughs) So, pretty clear that Isabella sees herself very much as independent from England and free to pursue Mm. her own self-interests over those of uh, her former country and indeed of her son. Uh, Indeed, when England failed to meet her demands for more money, she accepts a better offer from France, switches her allegiance in in return for more land and a lucrative pension. But this is her son. Uh, Okay, it's it's now a council, but it is her son. It's her son, and he is also now, uh, at this point, of age. Well, like 18 or more? Yeah. Wow. Wow. Mm. Do we have any correspondence between him and her personally? I'm not sure if we've got his letters. We do have some from her. And is she acting as a belligerent neighbour or a mother? Uh, She's sort of acting as one who is writing about how she's really just trying to do the very best for you. But for some reason, I keep getting these letters telling me of this or telling me that. And if you would only just see that I'm doing the best that I can... Could I have some more money, please? <laughs> oh, she's just a nasty piece of work. She's a bit. Um, a reconciliation of sorts was achieved in 1230 when Henry invaded France and uh, Isabella and Hugh provide some military support. It's possible that Isabella and Henry might have met uh, for the first time in 13 years, though this isn't certain uh, and the campaign doesn't really achieve anything. So Isabella is soon back into French service. Uh, instead but Isabella grows rather unhappy at her status in France she still holds herself as a queen but she's treated really just as a mere countess and her sensitivity blows up in 1241 when the young king Louis IX invested his younger brother Alphonse as the new Count of Poitou despite the fact that Isabella believed this title was due to her second son Richard Mm. 
So, so falling out with a French lot now. Falling out with a French lot. So Isabella helps to agitate for a rebellion against France with support coming from various powerful rulers across the continent, including her son, Henry III. So he comes over for a big invasion, and mother and son are reunited for the first time in at least a decade, if not even 20-odd years. She's, she, so, but she's fostering whole wars across France, though. Mm. It's not... She's, how is she still this important if it's just a tiny little bit that's attached to something else? Well, I mean, she's a queen dowager. She's got all these various other contacts. It's one of those situations as well where there's probably quite a lot of people looking to act against France. As I said, Louis the Ninth is a, a young king. He comes to the throne as a minor. So maybe quite a few dukes and counts and emperors think, oh, this is our opportunity to, uh, mm. you know, shift the balance against France. Unfortunately... It's a complete and utter disaster. Henry's forces are routed at the Battle of Tylerborg. Uh, Henry only narrowly escapes the battle. Uh, and Isabella and Hugh are forced to submit to the crown, are forced to submit to the French crown, submit to Alphonse as Count of Prato, and uh, they lose their lucrative pensions. It's like she's trying to be Eleanor. Yeah. <laughs> she's worked on the lines. Hmm. She's when she's able to influence stuff she does but the difference is she does it whether it's the right thing to do or not yeah uh. now this is probably the time you often mention about when you would have cut your losses and just retired quietly to the country and yeah being glad to be alive Isabella's 54 at this point has had quite a uh, quite a bad defeat so this is probably the time for her just that, to yeah. be quiet in Angoulême and she hasn't got any, any. Well, she's got enemies now, but the enemies have just had their victory. Yeah. So she's not going to. She could put her chips in at this point. She could put her chips in at this point, but mm. retiring quietly is not the forte of Isabella of Angoulême. In 1244, two royal cooks at the uh, French court are arrested for attempting to poison the king. And under interrogation, they claimed that they had been paid to do so by Isabella. Oh, my goodness. She is a witch. Fearing the outcome, should she be tried and judged guilty of attempted regicide, Isabella flees to uh, the Abbey of Fontevraud. Good old uh, Aquitanian yeah. Uh, place. Yeah. Uh, and she takes the veil as a nun. Oh, that's that's Granny's... Granny's Abbey, isn't it, for it is. Henry? Indeed. That's where Eleanor of Aquitaine, Henry II, Richard the Lionheart are all buried. So she's done that on purpose as well. Mm. And oh, now... This is shocking, Graham. <laughs> it is. I'm just... You must... I mean, you've had some time to get used to this, but this is brand new information. Yeah. It's, it's a lot to take in. But it, it's an awful lot to work out because it's so... Uh, convoluted and incestual do you think it can't be that and it is this is ridiculous <laughs> and indeed this really is the end of the line she does see out the uh, next few years quietly and she dies two years later at the age of 58 after a lovely meal <laughs> yeah <laughs> after a surfeit of <laughs> gruel <laughs> uh, yeah a surfeit of Bread and water. 
Uh, uh, she asked that her body be buried in a common grave with all the other nuns in atonement for uh, her sins. But when Henry III visited Fontevraud in 1254, he was appalled to learn that his mother was in a common grave. So he ordered for her to be exhumed and apparently personally assisted in the, the raising of the coffin. And the, she was then buried alongside Eleanor and Richard and Henry commissions a wooden effigy of her, which uh, still survives along with the others. No way. So I'd when, love to see that, G-Man. When we do our trip to Fontevraud, there's Henry, there's Eleanor, there's Richard, and there's Isabella. I want to see her as much as any of the others. <laughs> yeah. We really should do this. If we're ever allowed to travel again, um, <laughs> jump on the train and go and have a little gander. What a story. Goodness me. I think it's time to review her. Battleliness! So Isabella certainly demonstrates plenty of uh, agency and fighting spirit. Uh, of course, she's denied much of a role in England when married to John, and then is denied a role in the Regency, but instead of twiddling her thumbs, which she could have done, she returns to Angoulême, rules as a countess, picks her own disapproved-of husband, uh, and then when the Regent Council, Regency Council tried to withhold her dower land, she shows that she really means business by holding her own daughter hostage until they relent. She's petulant, right? <laughs> yeah. It's like a teenager with the power. Now, as Countess of Angoulême, she was initially given a very rapturous reception when she came back. It was sort of seen as almost a returning hero. She's a very popular figure. But it changes to resistance once it's clear that she's going to be an active and quite authoritarian ruler. Or they just met her. (laughs) Well, a bit of both, maybe. Mm. Uh, She faces particular opposition from a chap called Bartholomew de Puy, who uh, had been appointed by John to rule Angoulême on his behalf for many years. So Isabella seizes his estates and imprisons him along with two of his sons. Why? Uh, well, because he was opposing her, because he was like, I rule Angoulême, thank you very much. And she oh, was, see, said, yeah. no, I'm the Countess, you're going to jail. <laughs> you're fired yeah. big time. Uh, the English Regency Council supports Bartholomew over Isabella, to which uh, Isabella wrote... Uh, warning, little uh, darkly, our son's council should be aware, lest it issues any instructions as a consequence of which we are driven away from our son's council and affairs. It will be very serious indeed if we are removed from our son's council. Mm. Mm. So is that threatening war? It does sound like she's saying you wouldn't want to see me when I'm angry. Yeah. Yeah, it's... It, I see what you meant when I asked if it was genuine, that quote from her, that mm. quip with John. Yeah. And, yeah, it's that's right. You can imagine it. Uh, on a military level, she's also doing quite a lot in Angoulême. Um, she was constantly pushing for funding for Angoulême's defences, which, although irritating to the English Regency Council, um, there was a genuine threat um, that mm. she was trying to deal with. 1228, she started building a new castle in response to a lack of defences on the county's southern borders. And she also actually expanded Angoulême's territory by recovering the region of Cognac, which had been given to Richard's illegitimate son in the 1180s. Her influence is also, of course, felt on the grand European stage, where she initiated a full-scale rebellion against France. Hmm. Yeah. Amazing. She, uh, her motivation for this, there's sort of a few levels to this. She was infuriated, first of all, by the personal slight 
against her of being made to wait three days to meet Louis IX and his mother and regent Blanche of Castile, uh, as they'd call this grand investiture ceremony. And then her husband, Hugh, actually paid homage to Alphonse as Count of Poitou, just said this was the title she felt was due to her son, uh, Richard. Mm. So furious with both the French uh, king and uh, queen mother, but also, more to the point, furious with her husband, Isabella stormed off, uh, stripped all of the valuables from their home in uh, Lusignan, took them all back to Angoulême, proclaiming that she was a queen and she disdained to be the wife of a man who had to kneel before another. So when Hugh protested, she shouted back, Get out of my sight, wretch! You are a base knave and a disgrace to your people. And Hugh only managed to win her round by uh, promising to lead a rebellion uh, against the French, to which she warned, If you do not, you will never lie by my side again. I will not suffer you in my sight. Wow. It's a lot to unpack there, isn't it? <laughs> there is. And also, um, actually, I've missed out. I've just realised that um, when Hugh, Hugh follows her back to Angoulême with his tail between his legs, and then when he got to their uh, their house or their palace, he found it was locked. So he had to go and stay for three days with the Knights Templar. Hey, lads, lads, lads. It's, <laughs> it is... It, this is... This is EastEnders. Yeah. But, I mean, and a lot of... Ah, oh, Graham, right... Okay, so can we add arrogance to petulance? Yeah. Um, but extreme entitlement. It's a bit Trumpy, though, isn't it? That he, that he just there's this veil of um, authority, veil of power, just by saying it so. Mm. Uh, so, as I said, she then summoned her local barons. She also got the support of the Holy Roman Emperor, the King of Aragon, the Duke of Brittany, the Count of Toulouse, as well as her own son, Henry III, who's obviously King of England, Duke of Aquitaine, etc. Um, mm. It's a very impressive coalition, and they actually effectively declare their opposition publicly. So at Alphonse's Christmas court in Poitiers, Hugh and Isabella felt sufficiently emboldened to publicly withdraw their homage, stating that uh, Richard, her second son, was the true count. So Alphonse's crossbowmen apparently raise their weapons, but Isabella and Hugh just turn their backs and angrily storm out, setting fire to the lodging where they were staying for good measure before heading home to prepare for war. Wow. What a scene. Yeah. Oh, it's it's it she's fascinating. I cannot I cannot get my head round her because she's so <laughs> odd. Now, this is all very impressive from a battleliness perspective, except, of course, that the French rebellion was a massive failure. Uh, Henry III only managed to muster 30,000 men compared to 50,000 for Louis, um, Louis IX of France, who'd already defeated a rebellion in Poitou. And then Hugh, uh, then Henry is comprehensively defeated in battle, blames Hugh for only providing a small army, to which Hugh protests... God's body, blame my wife, your mother. By the threat of God, I am guiltless of her machinations. Yeah. Yeah, completely. Yeah, good scene. You get... <laughs> That's the EastEnders theme tune. 
But and actually, it doesn't matter that she lost it. Sorry, I mean, she does. To say, you know, the uh, the rebellion's defeated. They have to kneel in submission to Louis, beg his forgiveness, do homage to Alphonse, lose their pensions, pay for French soldiers to garrison their futures, and really, by the end of it, all of her grand ambitions for Angoulême and herself do essentially end in failure. We've got French dominance and expansion being realised to a much greater extent than if she had just stayed at home and twiddled her thumbs. Yeah, but um. It's about showing that agency, isn't that how we're judging it? And also, it's no it's no real surprise that she lost. She was a hateful figure. <laughs> no one would rally behind her. But blimey, how is she doing this? It's great. Similar with Eleanor, isn't it, with Battliness, where um, it's that tricky thing where it's showing such huge agency when you are leading or bringing about these rebellions and campaigns, but then you mm. start to veer into almost like a monarch and then you start yeah. to be judged on the success yeah. of your endeavours whereas exactly. other consorts obviously wouldn't get anywhere near this sort of thing but at the same time I feel like it's relevant to say that she's not always successful yeah yeah because that influences other her other actions as well but agency fighting spirit independence etc definitely there <laughs> it is brilliant it's like it, I feel like uh She's Eleanor, the bad sequel. <laughs> uh, it's I've, it's going to be a massive score for me. How massive? Let me think. <laughs> um, <laughs> there's a proper war, mm. so we're talking above five. Going against her son, I think it can't be anything other than an eight. Yeah, I was sort of I'm sort of thinking around an eight or seven and a half. I sort of. I do kind of want to mark it down a bit for the the losingness. There's like a bit of me that thinks that if you, I don't know, if you put it into a boxing sort of thing, you think you'd you'd come out battered and bruised, but you would win. Mm. Whereas maybe with well, Anella, and you think oh, you're you're not gonna, I wouldn't get into that yeah, ring. You're not going to. For some reason, I can't shake the top trumps analogy when I normally <laughs> love a boxing one, but I think that's where she, if it were if one of the fact there'd be equal. They'd be equal on all factors apart from one. The last one where uh, Eleanor gets like goodie status 10 and she gets zero. <laughs> so you're always going to lose ultimately, but mm. she's as strong. <laughs> like in a cartoon world, I've been watching too many cartoons. <laughs> so you're going for eight? Eight. I'm going to go seven and a half. I'm going to mic her down for the, uh, for the losing. Oh dear. Yeah, that's probably fair, isn't it? That's a good score, actually. So that's yeah. 15 and a half for battliness. That is a good score. Scandal. Well, there's. Uh, I, I'm guessing you probably still don't have it with you, but there's plenty to get the bell ringing. Yeah, I'm afraid um, lockdown prevents the bell from joining us, but uh, I can't even remember any of her scandal because it seems like you can't see the wood for the trees. <laughs> yeah. What's the first thing? The first thing is lots of early. Uh, betrothals. Yes, I mean, obviously that, you know, she's not really in control of this, but her marriage to John is in itself extremely scandalous. John has only really partially annulled his first marriage. Um, he sends a false delegation to no negotiate a betrothal to a princess of Portugal, knowing that he was going to marry Isabella instead. Um, breaking the betrothal with uh, with Hugh, uh, Hugh the Ninth, Isabella's extreme youth, and then, of course, the disastrous war that follows. Um, it's obviously all, these are all John's faults, but it casts a cloud over the marriage and it casts a cloud over 
Isabella with many blaming her for the loss of Normandy and it sort of helps the development of black legends uh, around her. For example, we said that uh, some chroniclers claim Isabella was placed in custody by John where she was guarded by the brilliantly named Thierry the Teuton. (laughs) He'd had enough of her. Well, indeed. And so according to uh, one chronicler, she has often been found guilty of incest, witchcraft and adultery so that the king, her husband, has ordered those of her lovers who have been apprehended to be strangled with a rope in her own bed. She's like Sleeping Beauty's mother. (laughs) She really is a baddie. Now, the incest was uh, supposedly with her half-brother, Pierre de Jorny, who uh, came to the English Uh, court in uh, John's reign. Peter Johnny. Peter Johnny, yeah. Peter of Johnny. Okay. Um, so he comes to the court under John, um, and in 1233, a man dies in uh, County Cavan, who's known as Pierre the Fair, son of the English Queen, which some have assumed is a son of Isabella and her half-brother Pierre. Oh, it'd be hard to hide, though, wouldn't it? It would, and sadly, it's unlikely to have been true. Yeah. Isabella's frequently found in John's company after this, continues to have children with him, and never faces any any real punishment so it seems unlikely that john would have thought her guilty of adultery and behave like that her half-brother is actually pretty loyal servant to john and survives him so was not strangled on her bed Mm, good um and as you said earlier probably the custody was probably more due to her own safety because um things are so bad in england at the time rather than anything she's done this this is fantastic (laughs) Absolutely brilliant. I mean, I'd forgotten. I'd forgotten about John. Yeah. (laughs) And earlier in this episode, uh, I was I had almost forgotten about Isabella, and I was worried that that would be her problem in scoring. But now that's just a a little starter for us. Of course, her second marriage is even more controversial than the first one, and this was entirely of her own making. She chose to marry the son of the man that she was previously betrothed to, which, Mm. in terms of the church, would make that an incestuous relationship. Uh, This is a man... I mean, even if we don't consider it incest, marrying the son of the man that you were engaged to marry... But it's brilliant. I mean, it's it's I'm, whoever wrote this script <laughs> deserves a BAFTA. And let's not forget, of course, that the son of the man she was previously betrothed to is himself betrothed to her own daughter. <laughs> so not content with stealing her daughter's husband, when the Regency denied her her dower land, she effectively imprisons her daughter when the English needs her back, so she uses her daughter as a bargaining chip in a battle no, for her dower rights. You missed out a crucial bit. You say when the English needed her back. Her son. When her son. Yes. <laughs> oh, my Lord. And if we didn't have enough already... Good things come in threes. She's also accused of attempting to assassinate the King of France. I'd completely forgotten that. <laughs> that is... That's, that is an eight on its own, a ten on its own. She... So this... this <laughs> <laughs> Let me, sorry. Is she related to him? 
Uh, y- yes, a bit. Yeah. I mean, I had to ask. <laughs> that shows how what a score that is. I mean, there's t- it's ten all over the place for me. Supposedly, she paid two servants to infiltrate the royal court and personally provided them with the poison to put into the food of uh, Louis the Ninth. It's hard to verify how true this is, but Louis does hold an infest- uh, hold an official investigation. She is summoned to appear, but while waiting outside on her horse, she was struck with fear at the harsh punishments that were given out to attempted regicides, even for a former queen. So uh, she decided to flee. And when she heard that Hugh and his son had uh, been, uh, her son, had been captured, and Hugh was denied the opportunity to prove her innocence in trial by combat, she decided the game was up. And that's when she runs off to Fontevraud. What a finish. <laughs> what a finish. It's more effective. If this were a uh, Shakespearean... Thing. This is where the that uh, the, she would have taken her life, but <laughs> it's so much better that she goes and becomes a nun at Fontevraud. Yeah, it's brilliant. Oh, it's t- it's Graham. It's ten. You don't need to go back. Once yeah, I th- I think it does have to be a ten. That's pretty scandalous. It's a twenty for scandal. Subjectivity. This might not be such a strong area. This is where she shows herself as a baddie, of course. Top Trump's is on to something, you know. Uh, In her favour, as we mentioned previously, she did play an important role in helping to secure the coronation of her son, Henry III, in 1216, when the country was in a mess. She also seems to have been a pretty effective ruler in Angoulême, at least early early on. So in this context, switching allegiance to France, you know, you can see that from Angoulême's perspective, she thinks, well, France is on the up, England's not helping. Makes mm. more sense. Not great for England, of course, but nevertheless. For Angoulême here, I'm just reading her. Yes, yes. Um, her reign as Queen of England did begin full of promise. She's crowned and anointed as Queen of England at a grand ceremony at Westminster Abbey uh, and was granted extensive lands and revenue uh, and revenue streams, some of which were actually owed to her predecessor, Berengaria, when we recall that John wasn't giving her her dower lands. Mm. That's because he just gave it to Isabella instead. Oh. Um, but although a very different character, I think it's fair to say, to Berengaria, uh, and indeed actually managing to go to England, Isabella was also denied any actual power or influence as queen. So while John gives her everything money can buy, he doesn't give her actual money or indeed actual power. So she's only mentioned in one charter by John, never given any kind of formal role. And indeed, until she had her first child in 1207, she was in the rather bizarre situation of living in the household of John's first wife, Isabella of Gloucester. Yeah, I mean, this, the whole episode is too weird to find that weird, I think. <laughs> yeah. Is she petulant because she's got all this stuff but no actual power? I mm. mean, it is a classic teenage thing. Yeah. Or did John do one good thing in his life and work out that she's a pure psychopath and you have to have her in a sort of gilded cage. Well, I say, maybe why she gets no power, maybe initially it's probably because she's so young and obviously inexperienced, but the mm. situation doesn't change. So maybe John doesn't want to concede any control, but maybe, as you said, maybe as she got older, he thought, oh, no, I don't think so. And obviously yeah, you've got to have leading, the character for it. Yeah, and obviously the leading nobles and churchmen in 1216 um, didn't see her as a unifying figure or an effective leader. So instead, William the Marshal... Uh, was chosen to be the regent rather than Isabella, and I think probably did a rather better job than she might have done. Oh, thank God. The marshal, I mean, again, what a star. Thank goodness we had him. <laughs> yeah. 
Now, Eleanor of Aquitaine had a somewhat patchy time as consort to Henry II, but she proved indefatigable in her commitment to advancing the interests of her sons when she was Queen Mother. The same cannot, frankly, be said for Isabella. Mm, no, <laughs> no, no, not at all. Can't help being denied a role in the Regency, but her subsequent actions suggest that her priority was always herself. Her marriage to Hugh created the troublesome alliance that John had sought to prevent uh, in marrying her. She switches her allegiance to France when they offer her a better financial package, later draws Henry into a disastrous rebellion against the French. She doesn't really do a terribly good job as Queen Mother. No, but she she shouldn't because she's the baddie. That's the script. Yes, I think Henry might have hoped for a slightly uh, different script. So her, uh, it's interesting to compare her with uh, her contemporary that we mentioned, Blanche of Castile, who's the granddaughter selected for greatness by Eleanor of Aquitaine in 1200. Mm. Uh, she became the regent for her son Louis IX in 1226, oh. ruled effectively, never remarries, and it's interesting, Isabella seems to have resented Blanche, hence the rebellion, in 1241. Uh, perhaps because Blanche was living the life Isabella felt she was entitled to. But uh, yes, one that you're so right. That's just pure je- jealousy would absolutely feature as a, as a top <laughs> priority of hers. So a score for subjectivity. I'm quite tempted to, to say zero. You haven't told me anything good at all. No. <laughs> No, I think only really it's helping to get Henry crowned quickly in 1216 is the only real positive thing. Mm, yeah, but that's because she was that was her only only her only piece left to play. Yeah. And probably everyone would done would have th- so pleased they had got rid of John that as you, well you said that was part of the case, but I think they were also absolutely desperate to remove it, her. Yeah. Anyway, that's a zero from you, a zero from me, zero for subjectivity. Longevity. So Isabella of Angoulême is Queen Consort of England for uh, King John from the 24th of August uh, in the year 1200 to the 19th of October 1216, which Mm -hmm. is a total of 16.17 years. Mm. She's then Queen Mother, for what it's worth, for Henry III, from the 19th of October, 1216, to the 4th of June, 1246, which equates to 39.67 years. So that's 55.84 years in total, though, of course, her time as Queen Mother only gets half marks. Mm. So 39.67 divided by 2 is 19.84. So added to 16.17 gives us 36.01 years, which is a score of 16 out of 20. That's pretty good. That's the eighth best overall for longevity. It's brilliant. Dynasty, not the broken. Isabella has five children by John, all of whom survive their father. Uh, they also go on to a rather illustrious things. Henry becomes King of England, Richard becomes the Earl of Cornwall and King of the Romans. Joan does eventually become Queen of Scots. Uh, her daughter Isabella becomes Holy Roman Empress and her daughter Eleanor marries the son of William Marshall and then marries Simon de Montfort. Wow. Hmm. And impressively, she then goes on to have nine children by her second husband, Hugh. What? All of whom survive her. Oh, this is 14 children. None of the Ongolin brood counts towards her score, of course. It's only the ones uh, from her time as Queen of England. However, that's five legitimate children, which gives her a score of 15 out of 20, which is the joint 10th best for the series. Brilliant. 
So all of that added together, she's actually got a very good score. It's uh, She's got 66.5. It's brilliant. Well, that would put her overall in fifth place. I'm, I'm really pleased about this, Graham, to have an out-and-out paddy. Anyway, it's not all about the score, of course. Does she have that certain something, that lasting legacy, the great achievement and star quality that we call... Rex Factor! One... Well, I'm going to give you a counter-argument, which is that she's she's an amazing character, a lot of fun, mm. utterly crazy, but mm. she's also, like, even it's one of those weird things, she's got a very high score, but as I said, she's got a high score for battliness, but actually, you know, doesn't battle well. She gets, she loses. She does very well, obviously, for longevity, uh, and dynasty, but most of that longevity is just being a, an absent and terrible queen mother. <laughs> mm, yeah, her time as queen consort of England, she doesn't really do anything at all. She's kind of rubbish as well. Yeah, I, I, I think I think you're right. I think the, they're all reasons that it's bad, <laughs> but she has the Rex factor in doing it. It, it, it because it, you, she would feature with Eleanor. In the Happy Meals, like the toys, but she'd be the baddie one because it's right and it's right that the baddie should lose overall, should have loads of scandal, should actually be a bad queen, um, but high scoring otherwise. But you're positing Eleanor as the kind of um, the virtuous and noble (laughs) doing all the good things, whereas... I sort of say that actually, you know, Eleanor rebels against Henry II. Eleanor is accused of incest with her Mm. uncle on a crusade and, you know, swaps the French king for the English king. So I'd say it's not that Eleanor is, you know, all the good stuff and Isabella is all the bad stuff. I'd say when I say bad with Isabella, I don't mean bad as in morally. I mean, Eleanor does all of this stuff, but successfully. Isabella tries to do the Eleanor stuff, but fails. Yeah, 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 yeah. So it's no, hitting the headlines see. nicely, but actually, you know, what's, what's she really done? But th- we're, you're looking at it um, uh, too much like an adult when I'm <laughs> talking about Happy Meals. Um, it's like if she had killed the King of France or if she had launched a yeah. successful rebellion that did something, I just feel like she's this crazy, unsuccessful well. person. <laughs> Well, it can I yeah, I, I as a result of that, I think her not getting it because she gets half of it <laughs> is good. But I guess stands, I'm looking yeah. to like an Eleanor of Aquitaine and thinking that's what this sort of force of nature character can achieve mm. when successful, or I'm looking to, as I mentioned, her contemporary Blanche of Castile and thinking, you know, Isabella of twenty eight she could have ruled England for 10, 15 years and then been the major influence on Henry for another 20 years after that. Whereas instead, she's just this sort of wrecking ball, mm. but that she doesn't actually ever knock anything down. She just well, really I mean, irritates them. <laughs> I wasn't even considering it going into this. It's just when the really? scores... Yeah, well, just because I thought, because, you know, she's just doesn't really succeed in anything she tries at. You know, she basically, end of her life, she's a nun in Fontreveau. Everything she's tried has failed. And I'm going for 
yes to the Rex Factor because she's my favourite and I hate her. <laughs> I'm going to say no, I think. I think I'm going to mm. come down on the no. Yep. That's good. I'm happy with that. So that is a split vote, but ultimately a no for Isabella of Angoulême. She had to get two yeses, so she does not quite have the Rex Factor, but she has certainly made an impression. Gosh, yes, she has. Correspondence Corner. So that was the life and consortship of Isabella of Angoulême. Uh, let us know which side you were on. Were you with Ali? Were you with me? Did she deserve the Rex Factor? Uh, if you'd like to get in touch, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram, where we are at RexFactorPod. Like the Rex Factor Podcast Facebook page or email RexFactorPodcast at Hotmail.com. And remember to send in an episode image for this with your hashtag oh. consult cards. Um, I love it when we um, have a split decision. Uh, if you'd like to support the podcast you can leave a review on Apple Podcast and subscribe on whatever podcast provider you use we are a free podcast but if you'd like to support us financially you can make a one-off donation via PayPal or donate monthly and join the Privy Council to get bonus content and we have various new Privy Councillors to welcome to the fold JME Nichols Isatus well. hmm, Dragon Mr <laughs> Bjorka <laughs> Jeremy Bradley, Ian Rowe, Ruthie Ruthie Lofthouse, B-Spec 457, Simon Charles Cleal, Josephine Enive, Cami 0910, Daniela Basore, Latrobe 398, K.A. Priest, Tommy Ross, P.J. Scott, C. Smith LMT, Tarina Brew, Christopher Osborne, Chris Mann W, C.F. Richards, Jeremy James, J. Collins, M. Carlyle, Patricia Gledhill, and Ailing T. Thank you very much. That was quite a, a roll call of some quality names there. <laughs> and now some messages from Privy Councillors. This is from Kate Levasseur. Thanks, Ali and Graham, for making my commute so much more entertaining. You're very welcome. This one from Mika. Hello, my name is Mika. I live in France and I'm 13. After two years of listening to your podcast, I have become a privy councillor, and like William the Fourth, I am dead chuffed to be a privy councillor. <laughs> well, this is amazing. Living in France and presumably French, and with excellent English, or either way, knows more about history than me. <laughs> I'm very impressed by that. Thank you so much. Mika, star. Magda says, hello and greetings from Poland. I've been listening to your podcast for half a year now and I'm enjoying it more with every episode. Thank you for making history fun and giving me something cool to listen to whilst playing solitaire. I love it. It's all over the world, this is. This is brilliant. You're very welcome. Finally, Bryn Elena says, So excited to get a coveted spot in the Privy Chamber. I'm looking forward to making my friends, all Americans, listen to the second series as we drive around Scotland together this coming April. Uh, oh. Not sure if that ended up happening. <laughs> uh, your podcast is a great way to learn about history through humour and pick up some British slang along the way. Cheers. Also, Cheers. I just want to say there was only room for one Rex Factor winner in that boat, and I'm glad it was Kenneth II. Yeah. And finally, another consort limerick from Louise Brimacombe. Oh, super. I cannot wait to hear her one of this. Oh, yeah. Uh, this time for Matilda Flanders, appropriately, of course, because Matilda Flanders was the last uh, split vote. Matilda, once spurned by a thane, chanced years later to meet him again. Now newly enthroned, she took all he owned, and it's rumoured she then had him slain. 
Oh yeah, very good. <laughs> Gen, I genuinely really enjoy those. <laughs> it's the best bit of the podcast. Oh yeah. Anyway, that's all from us and from Isabella of Angoulême. Uh, we're heading into a little research break now. Well, we are heading into a little research break now. <laughs> Uh, but we will be doing one more uh, podcast on the main feed because, uh, as we did last time we had a little break, we're going to be doing an interview with an historian. Uh, so this time it's going to be uh, Dr. Gabby Story, who specialises in the Angevin Queens, uh, appropriately enough. After that, we'll be back with a special episode relating to uh, the American Revolution. And then we're back to the consorts with Eleanor of Provence. That's all for me. See you next time. Cheerio. Cheerio. <laughs>